Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. And that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I'm about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. One heartbeat away from the presidency, not a single vote cast in my name. Democracy is so overrated. Hello? Am I really the sort of enemy you want to make? Can you blame me if I find it difficult to trust you right now? You are out of line, Frank. Hello, O'Toole. So excited. And we've decided to talk today about House of Cards, the Netflix series. The third part is launching next weekend, I believe on the 27th. And everybody will be able to take the entire weekend and watch uh, season three, which is the last season. It was a definite trend changer in TV and in how people view TV. And the person who put it all together, who really, really pushed for this is David Fincher, who loves TV the way I do. Netflix was the first to take one third of their entire budget and put forth the entire uh, season in one fell swoop. So People did, in fact, do exactly what Netflix hoped, and they watched every chapter, every episode in a row or over a short period of a week. So it was a game changer in the business, and that's one of the reasons we're reviewing it. And I think this is one of the best series I've ever seen, and it's all based on two things. One is the characters, and two is the acting. So Tool, step in here. What do you think of, of Netflix's House of Cards? Yes. Well, I was not surprised that you chose House of Cards because between <laughs> the two of us, you are a total political junkie. And I know that your favorite TV show of all time is The West Wing. And I was wondering how you thought this compared, if at all, if it's even comparable to West Wing or Scandal. Or- Yikes. Oh my goodness. I think it's a dark drama, whereas The West Wing, and there were some sad things that happened, but it wasn't dark. And this is a dark, dark, dark show. And this does seem to be more plot driven, whereas The West Wing was more dialogue driven. Interestingly enough, though, that's because The West Wing was once a week and each episode was truly its own story. Whereas uh, House of Cards is different chapters. uh, But I, I think they called them chapters for a reason because the entire book is the season. But I love the idea of manufactured dissatisfaction, meaning, uh, you know, we hook you in because you can't bear the thought you don't know what's going to happen next. They took one third of their entire budget, committed to three seasons, $100 million. That's how much uh, David Fincher was willing to bet on this. So, and I think it was a great bet. I think it's a great, great show. It's an interesting plot structure where in the pilot, he's passed over for being Secretary of State. At the end of season one, he becomes vice president. And again, plot spoiler, but at the end of season two, he becomes president. It's based on a British uh, House of Cards series that did very well about 10 or 15 years ago, but it's changed to reflect American politics. Well, let me ask you this, because while watching this series, there were three things which I'm not sure if I like or not. The first is the opening sequence. I love the music. The theme song, I think, is terrific. I'm not sure about the interval recording. Anyway, that's what my camera calls it, where they focus on the monuments of DC, and there are no people in the opening sequence. Well, Jeff Beal, who was the composer for all of this music, and who has been nominated for three Emmys, by the way, for the music that he's written for it, it, it's very, very interesting. Basically, 
the first season was was sweeping violins. You heard the violins and you see these dark clouds and it creates this sense of drama and danger and and then and then in season two he loses the violins and he, he goes in with full cellos and it's an assault. It's an assault on your senses. So he changes the music into season two to make it even more upsetting and dramatic and 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 ominous. And it, I can't wait to see what you know, what's he gonna do? Drums in season three? Well, I do love the music, but I think the opening sequence in terms of the shots, I know that they're establishing shots for Washington, D.C., and you certainly are reminded of all the monuments bespeaking power. So the music's terrific, but I think the opening sequence might be a little too long, especially if people are binge watching yeah, this no, thing. You're right. you know, yes, you're so right. It's I like, think you enough. could just skip yep. over the monuments because yep. it, what's interesting to me is that it's so plot driven in terms of the Machiavellian machinations, the power hungriness of Frank Underwood, and yet there are no people in the opening sequence. It's all monuments, which visually I tire of, you know, so I think that could be a little bit shorter. Okay, the second thing I'm not sure how I feel about it um, is his Southern accent. And watching season two, I know that it became a plot point that the fabulous Robin Wright, she's getting interviewed as um, the vice president's wife, And it's one of the interview questions that they had unearthed um, that she was from Texas and they found an interview that she had done when he was first campaigning years before and that she had set out to lose her accent. And then, of course, I thought, well, why did she feel the need to lose her accent, whereas he did not lose his and seems to be the only person on the show with a Southern accent? Well, interesting. Who else is a, a controversial political figure from the South who understood power. Uh, you know, I think the drawl is Clinton-esque and I think it's on purpose. And, and so why did she I lose do, hers I, and he did not lose his? Her whole, whole persona is based on the distance that's created with uh, haughtiness. I guess you think she's a great actor. Uh, it's just like, really? You know, she's right out of message in a bottle. I have never seen her play anybody other than this character. Oh, now, I think and she's she, terrific in this role. I think she's got a, a special regality. She is, but that's because this is who she is and this is what she plays in every single... Tell me a movie she's been in where she doesn't play this person. The Princess Bride? That's definitely a great answer to that. But And I think she's very, very good in the role because I think the role is perfect for her because that's probably exactly who she is. Um, and I saw her in a movie recently with Naomi Watts where Robin Wright plays an Australian, um, their friends, and yes, have affairs yeah. with the other one's son. I would say that was a very different part. No, she, but she plays the same person. She doesn't smile. She doesn't laugh. She has no giddiness to her, no jeu de vivre. She's sort of depressed. You know, I mean, same thing, message in a bottle. Oh, downtrodden divorcee, husband left her for someone else. She's alone you know, finds this message in a bottle. Oh my, then he dies. You know, like it's just, you know, you know, she, by the way, she's a great character and she plays it well and the camera loves her and I love watching her on the screen, but you could place her in any of these movies that she's been in the last 20 years. I can't imagine the show without her. I think no, um, oh, the, no, no. Scenes, yeah, exactly. the scenes between her and Kevin Spacey are so fun to watch. And it's very interesting. I've tried to deconstruct this because they're not two actors I would have put together as a couple. And somehow they work together as a couple. And it's it's a unique coupling in terms of they are it's both. It's a partnership. 
it's a partnership and they're both so interested in power and have a very interesting open marriage. Who does that remind you of? There's definitely a Clinton-esque quality. Oh, my last thing on the list okay. where I'm not sure if I like it or not. Um, and that, of course, is how they break the fourth wall, being the imaginary wall between the actors and the viewer. Um, and I don't know how I feel about that. I know when the show first came out, I went to Netflix, I clicked play because I thought, wow, what great actors. I want to check it out. And of course, you know, in the first five minutes, he breaks that dog's neck and he breaks the fourth wall. And somehow it lost my attention. I stopped watching, um, went back, and there are moments um, where I have enjoyed that device. Although in the first season, it felt more of a gimmick to me. And I'm not entirely <laughs> sure that it's necessary for maintaining well, yeah, the drama. Let, I feel like me, they're just me... trying to be different. Let me just interrupt for a second here to explain to the audience what she means by the fourth wall. Long, long ago, Shakespeare is the first one to uh, to do this, where the actors break the scene and they speak directly to the audience. And many people in today's world think it's a lazy man's way or a lazy person's way of explaining what's going on behind the scenes without having to, quote, show it. And so there has been controversy around this, but because it's Kevin Spacey, I think it's brilliantly, brilliantly done. And he knows how to break the wall without uh, breaking the scene, if you will. I wasn't sure if I was enamored with it or not in season one. At the very end of the first chapter of season two, Kevin Spacey is looking in the mirror. And then again, he breaks the wall and he says, did you think I'd forgotten you? perhaps you'd wished I had. And then he said, just one rule, hunt or be hunted. And I thought that was a terrific use, especially him looking in the mirror. It was a very natural way to bring it in. Very nice of Edward. He shouldn't have spent this sort of money on me. I've opened some wine downstairs. I'll be down in a minute. Did you think I'd forgotten you? Perhaps you hoped I had. Don't waste a breath mourning, Miss Barnes. Every kitten grows up to be a cat. They seem so harmless at first, small, quiet, lapping up their saucer of milk. But once their claws get long enough, they draw blood, sometimes from the hand that feeds them. For those of us climbing to the top of the food chain, there can be no mercy. There is but one rule, hunt or be hunted. Welcome back. God, what an actor he is. I think that the character most mirrors his character in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. I think. Interesting. Which was, yeah, which was from 1997. Francis Underwood is definitely a man who also has much good in him, as are most interesting people you know one's all one thing or another they just aren't and you know there's one part when she's been raped uh in college and he finds out at a uh at a military ceremony that the guy who raped her he's pinning a medal on him and he goes berserk and he mm -hmm. says i won't do it and she says you have to do it so you see that this incredible rage at the injustice that's been done to his wife this by the way is right after he's just thrown somebody in front of the subway. No offense, but uh, judge true. not lest Very you be true. judged. I mean, you know, there's that moment in time when you say, oh my God, what a good guy. Like he's so upset about what was done to his wife. And yet he killed somebody, you know, with his bare hands. And so 
there is this piece of him that is both good and really not good. You know, you know, he's he's not somebody you hate, even though many of the people around him hate him. And I think that's part of his genius and how he plays this role. And without him, I don't think this has anywhere near the uh, wealth of, of entertainment that it has with him. Um, well, I just want to interject to a bit of trivia about Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, which was directed by Clint Eastwood. Oh, and um, did you know Clint Eastwood actually composed part of that soundtrack? Kevin Spacey and Clint Eastwood both sing on that soundtrack. Well, Spacey can sing and he can, he you know, can he really does, sing. He does great um, impersonations. One of the best impersonators in Hollywood is Kevin Spacey. And if you haven't seen him do it, go to YouTube and you will die. He is fabulous at it. Absolutely brilliant. Um, of course, he played Bobby Darren in Beyond the Sea. But there was a great scene in season two where he sings to Robin Wright. She asks him to sing her something. Interesting choice of song. Didn't you think that was an yes. interesting choice? Yes. Loved very it. interesting. Yeah. And the Not, dynamic yeah. between the two of them, it's very interesting to watch. It's almost like a Machiavellian version of James Spader and William Shatner sharing their cigars at the end of Boston Legal out on the balcony. Um, the way that Robin Wright and Kevin Spacey, they sit in their window frame and um, they used to smoke together and now they go running together. Um, but definitely a very, very interesting dynamic. And then another character that I think helps make this show is Zoe. Zoe Barnes. She is bumped off. He throws her in front of the subway. Anyway, it's played by Kate Mara. Now, Zoe Barnes, to me, if you had to say to me, who's the most evil character in there? It's Zoe. She only uses people to get what she wants. She has no caring for anybody other than herself. And, you know, and I think at least Claire Underwood and Frances Underwood do care about each other and a couple of other people, too. I think Claire Underwood's breakdown when she when she totally sends the other person who was raped under the under the bus but Kate Mara has no redeeming virtue whatsoever. It's and interesting I that you point that out because I think usually um, characters like that get away with it because of their youth, because of their age. And yeah. so what is really very self-involved behavior it stands out in an older character like a Frank Underwood. Um, right. You know, and then there's another Zoe. character too uh, that is um, – Michael Kelly, who also doesn't have many redeeming virtues, but I think Kevin Spacey has a number of them, especially because he's one of my favorite actors on out in Hollywood at this particular well, moment I'm, in time. I'm very glad you brought up the role played by Michael Kelly, which would be Doug Stamper, who is the right-hand man to Frank Underwood. And watching it, it's incredible how loyal he is to Frank Underwood and how the missions that he goes on on his behalf and... Um, you know what it kind of reminded me of? Watching the Doug Stamper character, where he'll basically do anything for Frank Underwood, it reminded me a little bit of, do you remember when Jonathan Edwards was running for president and that scandal broke about the woman that had been hired to film a movie to do his PR and she yes, claimed that she had had yes. his love child? <laughs> was well, that Ryle Hunter? Yeah. Yes. And do you remember his assistant who stood up first and was willing to take the fall for that? And of course it came out that it wasn't true and he was just trying to... Um... Well, all, all of the plot summaries, by the way, in House of Cards have some sense of deja vu, like you heard this a little bit somewhere before. You know, there's, you know, a lot that happens in Washington that borders on evil. I don't think Michael Kelly's doing it because he'll do anything for Kevin Spacey. Michael Kelly's doing it because his 
his level of power is directly proportional to Kevin Spacey's level of power. So what he does is to increase his own power through his work with Kevin Spacey. And, and yet it's interesting that he doesn't try to jump ship and become the right-hand person to the president, for example. Like he puts all his eggs into the Frank Underwood well, basket, if you will. because he's smart enough to know that that's, that's his ticket. For example, with the character of Remy, the lobbyist who used to work for Frank Underwood and then jumped ship right. and went to somebody that was willing to pay him more. You know, right. there's dialogue about this in season two where you have to crave power more than money to remain loyal to these politicians because right. you, you could always sell the exclusive. Um, but there's well, no, no... I, I, right. I, I think what Underwood's comment is, which I think is so brilliant is, you know, money, the, the house, you, the, the house you buy with money eventually crumbles, you know, it's just a house, but power never crumbles. And so he'll take power over cash any day. Kevin Spacey is loyal to someone, his wife. Robin Wright is loyal to, to Kevin Spacey. They do have loyalty. I think their love is really beautiful in some ways. It's not that I aspire to that type of love, but I certainly acknowledge and admire the commitment they had to each other and the feeling they have for each other. And when he's in lockdown and she's being interviewed and she's sort of outed about an abortion and he comes in and the look that they give each other is just unbelievably fabulous. It is a very supportive dynamic. And of course, both of them keep their eyes on the prize of do not ever forget the mission. And when he thinks he can't convince the president at the end of season two, she's like, get out there and you serve him up your heart on a platter and let's get this thing done. And yet when he is named president, when he's about to open the door, is it to the Oval Office or the White House? And he's about to step through and he waits for her to go through with him. And um, he says, come on, we accomplish this thing together. And she said, no, no, you go take a minute for yourself first. Um, they do have a very supportive dynamic. I will definitely yeah, give you do. that. They do. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, you know, I know maybe you don't have to kill people to have it, but, uh, and, you know, <laughs> true, true, true. Exactly. I mean, look, I, you know, the price they pay to get it. I don't know if that price is worth paying at all, but I certainly admire their love story in their own way. And, I don't think their attraction is necessarily sexual as much, you know, it's much more with a common goal and the common uh, growth in mind. You know, a scene that I loved was where he was practicing with his secret service man or his security detail guy. Um, you know, he's been asked to throw the opening pitch at a baseball game. And of course, most people asked to do this can't do it because the mound seems a million miles away if you're not a professional pitcher. So Kevin Spacey, who doesn't really look like he has a very good baseball arm, is throwing the ball um, to his secret service guy in their backyard and Robin Wright comes out with iced tea for both of them and just kind of makes fun of the fact that the last time he had to do that the pitch didn't make it over the plate you know a character who um, I miss and I can't exactly pinpoint what it was about his character and it, it was the performance it must have been that I found a little mesmerizing was representative Peter Russo who was played by Corey Stoll from oh, season yes. one the one who ended up yes. running for governor of Pennsylvania definitely a flawed tragic character those plot lines were very intriguing and I thought he did a great job with that role there's a lot of Shakespearean Greek tragedy in in uh in this and also i think there's a bigger message too about how very difficult it is to keep politics clean it's just packed with intrigue and driving wedges on purpose between people deception and bribes and, and it's also 
packed with amazing, amazing, amazing dialogue. And I think the writing in this is absolutely spectacular. Did you feel that way? There's definitely some very dramatic touches. So for example, one thing, which is the quirk of Frank Underwood's character is how he bangs on the desk twice. Um, And he tells this story at one point about how he was inspired by his father, who said it was like a mixture between knocking or touching wood and strengthening one's knuckles to remind yourself that you need luck and hard work both. Um, And the way that they ended season two, where he becomes president, he walks into the Oval Office, and all you hear is him doing that banging on the desk twice. And then it goes to black. I thought that was very dramatic. 87 nominations and 12 wins. I mean, this is, it's a plethora of excellence in so many, many, many different ways. And um, the political conflict, the duplicity, the, the relationships inside of it, the power, the corruption, even the relationship between Francis and the president, uh, you know, is... You, you think, is this guy an idiot? You know, does he not see any of this for what it is? You know, and then when you read in true life, if you read the biographies of many of the presidents and the isolation that takes place, you know, somebody said it was, you know, the White House is the, is the most comfortable prison in America. You know, I thought meeting the first lady in season two was an interesting character addition. One thing that I wanted to ask you about is, this um, appearance of real life reporters on the show. So for example, Rachel Maddow or Morley Safer, where do you stand on that? I love it. I think it's fine. Does it bother you at all in terms of blurring reality with fiction or journalistic ethics or the fact that journalists are now appearing on TV shows? Chris Matthews loves to do it. And now the character of Raymond Tusk played by Gerald McRaney who, of course, is from way back, Simon and Simon, married to Delta Burke from Designing Women. Um, what do you think about his character, the interplay between him and Frank Underwood in season two? Tusk is in town. He's meeting with the president in 49 minutes. He's convincing the president to change his mind. You would be making a disastrous mistake. I feel like I'm losing control of my own goddamn administration. Hit him again and hit him now. He's a dangerous man. I want him obliterated. More than that, let's make him suffer. I don't know whether to be proud or terrified. You think about the Koch brothers, you think about George Soros, you think about uh, the billionaires and their connection to politicians and how they have, you know, elevated politicians through their financial support and what do they get in return or what don't. I mean, you know, one never knows in the end. And of course, the reporter, Lucas, who plays the reporter, he ended up on the show Madam Secretary. Yes. So I got one little piece of trivia for you. And you probably already know this. But um, I was reading an article about the people who dress Robin Wright um, for this show. And I'm sure you've noticed, but she only wears solids and usually only black or white. As you know, I wear black unless I can find something darker. And as yet, I have not ever (laughs) found anything darker. I love the way she dresses. But also, come on, she's got an amazing body and she's stunning to look at. And she moves, you know, you know, beautifully. I do think she has a very regal presence, but it did crack me up in season one where she bought her husband, Frank, the rowing machine. (laughs) implying that you should really start working out. But okay, let's hear your pieces of trivia. Okay, so during a meeting with Peter Russo, your favorite little guy that gets killed off by Francis, Francis Mm -hmm. Underwood offers him a drink. Peter accepts the drink and asks Francis if he's going to have one. And Francis says no. I think he says something like it's too early to be drinking. And 
uh, Kevin Spacey plays Dave Harkin in Horrible Bosses, where he does the same thing to Jason Bateman's character. I thought that was interesting. Oh, it's a good one, Hollister. Okay, and then uh, Kate Mara was told from the beginning that Zoe was going to die eventually, but to keep the secrecy before the second season premiere, Mara couldn't tell to anyone that she wasn't part of the show anymore. So she would lie when somebody asked her how the shooting was going. Now the shooting takes a long time. So for five months, she's telling everybody she's going to work, but she's not. That's hilarious. I know. I thought that was fun. But also it's the first original Netflix production to win an Emmy. It was amongst the very first Netflix productions ever. So that's a very high quality right out of the box. Right. Now, have you at all looked at the um, original BBC drama series, House of Cards? You know, I have not. And as you know, lately I've been on a total BBC kick. So it's kind of surprising that I haven't, but I've heard great things about it. You know what? I, I tried to get through it. But to me, it first of all, it's shot in black and white. And I don't understand the politics of England the way I do the politics of America. So for me, it just didn't have the same hook. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I just don't like watching the second of anything that I'm watching. But um, so I did not. I didn't. I didn't end up loving it, but people that I know, really smart people, like my friend Paula, who's very smart, she loved the the BBC one even better than this one. Well, I can't say that the show makes me want to go into politics. Yeah, yeah, but you started all this. So, like, what is the point of that sentence? Because you never wanted to go into politics. You've never been interested in politics. But it's very interesting because I suppose this is why this does not surprise anyone involved in advertising since billions of dollars are spent every year on commercials that what we watch on TV can have an effect on how we feel about something. (laughs) For example, it's kind of what they used to call the LA law effect where applications to law schools skyrocketed when they started putting people like Harry Hamlin and Jimmy Smits on LA law, where people started to think, you know, maybe this is what people look like in law school. Um, or even all these CSI shows and spinoffs, there has been a spike in people that wanted to do that kind of work. Um, And yet I I cannot say that watching House of Cards makes me at all interested in following this line of work. (laughs) Well, um, (laughs) not a single shot in the entire series is handheld. The camera is always, they don't have any handheld cameras. Okay, that's pretty unusual, isn't it? Nowadays, it didn't used to be. And I like it. I like that I'm solidly in the room. You know, I get to focus on what's being said. I like it. Maybe that circles back to my question about this interval recording that they show in the opening sequence where you see the stream of headlights on cars and the monuments, but you see no people. Maybe that goes towards the camera work where they want to portray some kind of solidity to the monuments and the office um, in Washington where the White House will stand no matter who comes and goes out of it. And I suppose a shaky handheld camera would not bespeak power the way that a tripod or... Well, you're solidly in those rooms. You know, you're not going anywhere during these scenes. Mm -hmm. Hollister, just to clarify, when they release season three on February 27th on Netflix, you can watch all the episodes, all the chapters at once. Yes. Oh, yes, you can. Yes. That is amazing. So It is. It is. It is. Don't just come in at season three. You must begin at season one. So so we hope you watch it. We hope you uh, enjoy it as much as we do. And we hope we don't see any of those things come to fruition in the future in Washington. Not one thing. <laughs> so Francis, yeah, stay where you are. <laughs> see you later, O'Toole. 